salt is good. No, it's not that salt is just good. It is yummy. <laughs> Our bodies need sodium chloride, that's salt, to survive, to live, to grow, to be strong. You couldn't tell that to my dad, however. My dad struggled with high blood pressure his entire life. So we had to be very, very careful uh, in our house when I was growing up using salt. Nothing was cooked with salt. Or if it was, it was very, very little. Hence, food tended to be kind of bland. And, and when you tried to add salt to your mashed potatoes or your broccoli, uh, you'd get a raised eyebrow from my dad in a lecture on the evils of water retention caused by salt. Too little salt, however, can be dangerous, as we recently discovered with my mother. Too little salt creates a condition called hyponatremia, which has some pretty nasty symptoms. Muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, disorientation, dementia, and if that's not bad enough, shock, coma, and death can result from not having enough sodium chloride in your system. Thanks to its chemical nature, salt has the amazing ability to intensify the tastes that we like and suppress those tastes that we don't. My grandmother used to say that salt brought out the flavor of a dish, and she was right. Now, of course, she would tell you how to make a dish, and she'd give you this recipe to make a dish, and it was never exact. It was a pinch of this and a dash of that and a smidgen of this over there. And I want, Mom, what, what's grandmother's recipe mean by a pinch, a smidgen, and a dash? And she says, well, that's just a little bit or that's a teensy bit. And I, Mom, I need measurements. How much in ounces? Mom, it doesn't work that way. Well, a teeny bit, even just an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny little bit of salt can make something taste a whole lot better. Here's a big box of salt. And, uh, you know, it tastes kind of mm, not good by itself. Have you noticed that? By itself, salt is kind of overpowering. But you add just a little bit to popcorn, and wow! Growing up, Dad had an air popper. And that made the driest, nastiest, least appetizing popcorn you've ever eaten in your entire life. And if you tried to melt butter onto it, forget it. The popcorn would shrivel right up. And when you added salt to it, it didn't stick because there was no oil. So you had to add salt and salt and salt. And you never got enough. Oh, what a pain. How difficult. But you put salt in mashed potatoes or a baked potato or on fries, on broccoli, on cauliflower, some salt on steak, some salt, a little bit of salt on your chicken as you're getting ready to cook it. Uh, wow, I mean, wow. I guess the only thing that doesn't go good with salt is what, ice cream maybe? Mm, I don't know. Well, maybe. Who knows? Guess what? There's salt in ice cream. There's, yes, indeed. There's salt. Cakes and cookies and puddings and bread all have salt in them. Why? 
because it enhances its natural flavor. Salt is also a preservative. It absorbs water from food, making the environment dry and therefore not conducive to mold or bacteria. There's nothing more yummy or good for you than salted bacon. Oh. <laughs> a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich sounds really good right about now, don't you think? Charlie's over there. They got them, and guess what? They're open. Mm. Greg, hurry up. Jesus says, salt is good. And it's true. Salt is good. Salt is useful. Salt has many purposes. It's a preservative. It's an enhancer of flavor. It makes things taste better as they are in the cooking and in adding it. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This saying is probably rooted in some of Jesus' preaching on the necessity of the people of God to be like preservative in the world, to be like salt in the world, to be like salt on food, preserving it. Remember, this culture didn't have refrigeration. So to keep their meat lasting, they would salt it so it wouldn't start to decay as quickly. They would salt their meat after they would cook it so that it would last. That salt was a preservative. Not only did it enhance the flavor, but it preserved it. And the image here, the metaphor here, is that we are to be like salt in this world, bringing preservation to it. Not only preservation, but zest and life. I mean, I hear people, I've seen sermons preached on this subject, and they often roost on the preservation part, and that's important. We're going to come back to that in a second. But what about zest for life? After all, that's why we like salt. It makes the popcorn better, makes the french fries better, makes the steak better, makes mashed potatoes better, makes the broccoli better, makes the broccoli a lot better. But that and cheese really helps too. Uh, makes, makes the okra better. That and ketchup. My brothers and sisters, salt is wonderful. It brings zest to life. It makes things taste better. And we as the church, as the body of Christ, are called to make things better. We're called to be the zest of life. Not dull, not boring, but alive with zest and flavorful with excitement for the calling we have as Christians to express the love of God to and for all. We're called to be a people of life, excitement for life, zest for life, happiness for life. We make life better. We're called to make life sweeter. We're called to make life less bitter. That's one of the things that salt will do when you add it to items as you're cooking. It will reduce bitterness. The church is called to bring life and zest, sweetness and less bitterness. Hmm. Sadly, the church often fails in this part of its calling. Sometimes we become some of the most bitter people. When we think 
we know what's best. And when we think in a weird twist, we think we may even know better than Jesus what's best. You say to yourself, what are you talking about, Greg? We don't know what's better than Jesus. Well, no, we don't. But our actions often speak otherwise. Amen. We're called to be the preservative of the world. But we don't act that way. Not only are we not the zest and we're, we're bitter, but we also don't preserve. Look at what we do as the body of Christ. Fighting and backbiting and disagreeing to the point that the whole world notices it and talks about it. When I invite people to churches, not this one yet, praise Jesus, but when I invite people to churches, the churches I serve as pastor, sometimes the response to me will be, Greg, I'd like to visit your church. Pastor, I'd like to come visit. But churches are full of hypocrites. Bitter and angry. They're called to love and they don't. And sometimes it can be really difficult to counter that. Sometimes the desire might be there to point out that hypocrisy and finger pointing generally goes both directions, but no, that doesn't work. For yes, indeed, the church, the body of Christ, is filled with people. And people fail. Remember we talked about it last two Sundays? Jesus does everything well. Jesus does everything well. Jesus does everything well. We don't. We fail. And yet we're called to be the salt of the earth. Jesus addresses the fact that we fail. If you put, if any of you, notice he didn't, he, he was very specific here. Not, this is any of you. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, if you cause any of them to stumble in trying to come to me, if you put something between them and me that causes them to stumble as they're coming to me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Ooh. So when we come, when our attitudes, when our actions, when our failures... When our words, when our deeds come between others and getting to Jesus. When we and what we do causes people to fail to come to Jesus. To turn back, to turn their back on the gospel and turn their back on God. When what we do, what we say, what we fail to do, what we fail to say creates a stumbling block between someone, a child of God, and Jesus, it'd be better for us if a millstone were hung around our neck and we were thrown into the sea. Wow. And yet, our fighting, our backbiting, as the people of God, our failure to be together in peace as the people of God, our failure to recognize each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the people of God, our failure to express words of grace to each other, as the people of God, our failure to express words of grace to others, as the people of God, 
we are creating stumbling blocks between uncounted numbers and their coming to Christ. We're called to never place a stumbling block. And when we find something that is a stumbling block in our actions, in our words, in our deeds, in our function as the church or in its function as individuals, we're called to get rid of it, to cast it aside. This is why I've always been bothered by those who say that you are thus and such, a rich, a poor, a foreigner, a Catholic, a Jew, a black, a white, a straight, a liberal, a gay, a conservative. You, you, you can't come to Jesus if you're any of those. We live in a polarized society and culture, and we Christians are part of it. And we participate in this thing that says that we think that we are God's chosen few, and all others, they're damned. Hmm. No. We are placing ourselves, when we say these kinds of things and we act this way, we're placing ourselves as a stumbling block between people who need Jesus and Jesus. Doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. Doesn't matter what ethnicity, ethnicity you are, what nationality you are. Doesn't matter if you're male or female, straight or gay. Conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican matters. Not what you are. We all, every single one of us, need Jesus. Amen. And there's not a single person alive today that doesn't need to hear the good news of the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we say anything that even hints at the idea that God doesn't love, doesn't cherish, and doesn't welcome all into the family of faith. When we say anything that might suggest that someone, anyone, might be told by God, you're not welcome here. We are a stumbling block. We are being a stumbling block between a child of God and Jesus. And it would be better for us if a millstone were hung around our necks and we were cast into the sea. That's what the church does when it excludes the children of God, any child of God, from the family of faith. If your hand, and if you've missed it, he keeps going. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. This part makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm going to read it for that reason. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell 
where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. I could add to that if I were so bold and to say, if your mouth causes you to stumble, causes you to say something you shouldn't say, (laughs) sew it up, (laughs) turn it off, lock it, zip it. It is better to be quiet than to be tossed into the fiery furnace. Now, Methodists don't like to talk about hell too much. I had a great aunt. Her name was Lucy. And you're going to hear a lot about Lucy over the years. She was a big woman. I mean, six foot two, big and wide, and just a great big tower of love. When you'd go up to her, uh, she would enfold you in her arms and you would disappear, my friends. And you knew you'd be surrounded by love. And she was the prayer of our family. But one of the things she said to me was, when she found out I was called to the ministry, she said, Greg, when you preach a fire and brimstone sermon, remember, it's aimed at you too. Ooh. Well, I've never been comfortable with fire and brimstone sermons. They seem to me often to miss the point. I'd rather preach on God's grace and God's love and faith and the calling that we have to share God's love with all. I don't believe that people are effectively frightened into the kingdom of God. Rather, I believe that we are called to proclaim the good news of the love of God to and for all. And let that other stuff, that fire and brimstone stuff, sort of mm, fall. I'd rather proclaim the good news of the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But there are occasions when that fire and brimstone needs to be pointed at us. Not at them sinners out there, but at us. Jesus is talking to us. He was talking to his disciples. He's talking to us, the body of Christ. When we fail, when we stumble, when we say what we shouldn't say or do what we shouldn't do, when we fail to be the body of Christ as Christ calls us to be, then it would be better if we had never been here. It would be better if a millstone were wrapped around our necks and we were tossed into the sea. Better for us and better for them. You see, God's love, God's grace is more powerful and more amazing and more transformative than any message of hellfire and brimstone could be. Yet Jesus realizes that when you get in between and when you quench that message of grace and love and faith by your actions or your inactions, when what you do does not coordinate with what you say, when your creed doesn't match your deed, it doesn't matter what you do. We fail. When the church preaches love and grace and peace, but then excludes, denies, creates barriers. When the church preaches forgiveness and then refuses to forgive. 
When the church preaches grace and then reserves it for itself, but not for others. Or even worse, for that little group within itself and not for the other groups within itself. When the church, the body of Christ, fails to live the life and be the true salt of the earth, preservative in the world, but instead becomes divisive and forces people away, then we need to hear that message. This message that Jesus was preaching to us. We're called to add zest and life to the world. We're called to add sweetness and not bitterness to the world. And we're called to be preservative in the world. To bring truly the presence of God's sanctifying grace to all. You see, Methodists have this way of talking about God's grace that sees it in its various stages of life. We begin with prevenient grace. Now, grace is grace is grace is grace, but how we encounter it defines how it functions for us. And before we do anything, God's grace is going ahead, preparing the way, calling us and wooing us. That's prevenient grace. Calling us and wooing us and going ahead of us and preparing the way for us. A good illustration of that is baptism. In baptism, we, are, we receive God's grace before we've done anything. We receive God's grace and God's love, regardless of whether you be an infant or an adult. We are passive in receiving God's grace and baptism. There's justifying grace. When we have said yes to the love of God that we have received in prevenient grace, when we have said yes to the love of God and to the, the work of Christ on the cross for us, there's justifying grace. We are forgiven, justified, made just like Christ. Viewed just as if we were Jesus. We aren't. We're still sinners. But that's how God views us. Then after justifying grace, there's sanctifying grace. As we live our lives in faith, trusting in God's grace, God slowly but surely over time begins to change us. Begins to mold us and remake us. Begins to salt us and season us. And make us better and stronger and sweeter and less bitter and more preservative. And over time, although we ourselves cannot be as perfect as God would call us to be, nevertheless, over time, if we live in faith and exercise the means of grace and grow in grace over time, we will become more and more and more the kind of people the kind of individual Christians and community of Christians that God calls us to be. That's sanctifying grace. To the point that someday, and Methodist preachers are required to say that we believe that we are moving on towards perfection and that we will attain it in love in some, at some point in this life by God's grace. And yes, indeed, we also believe that if we live in life and live our life of faith and trust in God's grace and continue to be part of the family of faith and expressions of God's grace are flowing from us as we act in faith and give cups of water in the name of Jesus and as we help the hungry and the poor in the name of Jesus and as we lift up the little children in the name of Jesus and as we do all these things and as we express our faith in actions, we believe that over time we will come no, become more and more acquainted with and know better and better 
that love of God to the point that at some point in our life, maybe kneeling in prayer at Holy Communion or sitting in prayer in your pew, you may touch for an instant that perfect love of God. We're called to be preservative in this world, the salt of the earth. We're called to add zest and life to it and to preserve it that others might hear the good news of the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, that others might hear and receive the gospel message, that others might hear and receive and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that others might enter into a relationship with God and be transformed by His grace and transformed by His love, that this world might be transformed into a likeness of the kingdom of God. May we be the salt of the earth. May we bring zest and life to this world that we live in. And may God's grace so move with us and within us and through us that we might be preserved and that this world might know the preserving touch of the love of God in life and in life eternal. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And may the children of God say,